Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. That's the thing. If the stigma wasn't there, it wouldn't be so bad because no one has a problem saying so-and-so died of cancer, so-and-so had a heart attack, so-and-so had an accident, so-and-so died of suicide. It should be be able to fit within that same level of no stigma. But the stigma is there. I think it's getting less because we're having conversations now. This is Knocking Doors Down, your host, Jason Lachance here. Of course, through my addiction, recovery, and mental health struggles, I developed a passion for speaking with those that have turned their darkest times into their greatest advantages. And I'm speaking with Sandra Rostarola, the author of Making Friends with Monsters. I mean, my goodness, the amount of awards you won, Author Academy Awards, Literary Classics Awards, uh, Eric Hoffer Award, the Wishing Self Award, I, the, the reader's favorite. It goes on and on and on. And you're doing such amazing work, especially with the in the fiction realm, young adults and um, which. OK, I'm middle aged, but I really enjoy a lot of that literature. So uh, it's great to be speaking with you. Oh, thank you for having me on, Jason. I'm just really honored to be here. Absolutely. I, uh, and I love Australians. They just have a place in my heart. So, you know, Sydney born, right? Sydney born. Yes. yes. Yeah. So why did, well, let me ask you the why of this book, Making Friends with Monsters. Um, I mean, it, I popped on your website, of course, reading more about it before we arranged to talk. I mean, you say fact number one about monsters, most people don't know they exist. And I think a lot of people live in denial. And I think it's really interesting how you parallel this into fiction. So why the book? The book happened... As authors, we're sort of always on the hunt for a story. But this is a case where I say the story found me. I hadn't actually intended to write this book. I was in the middle of my fantasy series. I just released... Cecilia, The Last Coiletier, which is book one of my trilogy. And this was back in 2017, late 2017. Mm. And I live in Los Angeles, but I went back to Sydney to do a book release and a signing back there. And that's when a school friend came up to me and she told me her heartbreaking story about how a couple of years prior her ex died by suicide and she was now left with three children ranging from 11 to 18 and first of all, my heart just broke because my dad died by suicide when I was 13, leaving my mum with five kids and I was the baby of the five. And I'm looking at my friend going, oh, my gosh, you know, you're my mum. And my girlfriend said to me, you know, she goes, I can handle all of it, the, all the craziness. But what breaks me every time is when my girls say to me, mummy, why did daddy do it? 
she said, because I, I just don't know what to say. And that just got me. It really got me because my family lived with a lot of silence surrounding suicide. You know, it was a topic we just didn't talk about. And that fed down to the next generation with my nieces and nephews where they weren't really told what happened to Popper when they asked. Popper had a heart attack. Um, then with my two brothers, I've had two brothers that have also died by suicide. And it was what happened to Uncle Paul and Uncle Martin. They had accidents. So there was this, this stigma surrounding the suicide. And I'm like, I just, I don't want that to happen. That, that shouldn't happen. So... On the flight home from Sydney to Los Angeles, I just kept thinking, I have to be able to speak to this. If anyone can speak to it, it has to be me. And that's how the book came about, Making Friends with Monsters. Let me get your opinion, Corey. You know, I'm a parent of two, and I do talk openly about my mental health struggles and my addiction struggles and, you know, therapy is something that happens with the, with the kids. And I, you know, preach that it's healthy. And I... I I think it's very dangerous if we don't tell the truth of that, because I oh. think it, it we have to do the things no matter how comfortable to open the conversation. And it's not an insult to my parents or my parents' parents, but those were yeah, I don't know, emotionally less mature or less capable of talking about these kind of things, or it was societal that you don't. And we're going to have to. Um, I think it's the only way we arm ourselves, right, with education. Exactly. Now, what was interesting, mum did not hide this from us kids. Mm. She told me the day that it happened. And I remember that day vividly getting off the school bus. And we lived on acreage out in Dural, which is the northwest suburbs of Sydney. And it was just myself and my brother, Martin, because we were the only ones still at school. And it was just really weird. I remember walking across our property and everything just felt quiet. You know, in Australia, there's always birds, there's always noises and there's <laughs> leaves rustling in the gum trees. But honestly, it just felt silent. And then I walked inside and mum, mum's eyes were red, red rimmed. And she said, you know, you, you better sit down. I've got some news. And me being the stubborn teenager I was, was like, I don't need to sit down. There's nothing you can tell me that's going to shock me. And she said, your, your dad passed away this afternoon and boom, my legs just gave out and I sat down. And But she, she told us, you know, everything that happened and I'm glad she did. I think the difficulty came with um, my family for the next generation. Mm -hmm. I myself, I don't have kids, but I, I, I sort of do get it because... <laughs> How do you start the conversation? Because we were older, so we were told, but then when the little four-year-old says, Mummy, you know, they see a, a photo on the mantelpiece right. of Grandpa. That I, I do understand that that's where the challenge comes in, that the lie should, or the story, I guess is the better thing to say, should never start. But once you start the lie, it, it's hard to then break it because it's like, well, when they get older, we'll tell them the truth. But when is older? You know, yeah. when is that? And that I think that's the challenge. And what happened with my niece, kids are smart. They're smart. They overhear conversations. And my niece, who was about my age, she was about 13, 
And she knew that there was some things that her parents were talking about that weren't quite what she understood to be the truth. So she's like, oh, Auntie Sandra's coming out from America. Let me corner her. And so she <laughs> cornered me. I took her out. We had a, a great time. And then she started asking me questions about, you know, nono. We say nono in Italian and um, Uncle Martin. And I'm like, oh. First of all, she's just asking, you know, what were they like? And I'm talking about it. And then she said, well, how did they die? And that's where I paused. And I said, well, what were you told? And that's when I found out that she was told a heart attack and an accident. And, oh, you know, yeah, that was that was tough. And she talked about how she didn't appreciate the lie. And that's that's the thing. The kids don't appreciate the lie because that disrupts their sense of normal. Yeah. Because parents are supposed to be that authority figure that there shouldn't be any lies coming from parents. And as soon as there's a lie, they, they their insecurity starts because it's like, well, why did you lie about that? And the funny thing is, especially for the, for the next generation, their arm's length removed from, you know, an uncle or a, a grandfather or someone they never met. So when they hear the hear what happened, they're like, "Oh, okay," and it's it, it, it doesn't really affect them that much. It's the generation that had to live with it that I, that holds the trauma, and I think that was what the struggle in my family was, and it just tripled, right? Because we just had my dad, my brother, and then another brother, and I think that just compounded and compounded and compounded, and I understand why it was such a tough conversation. Oh God, absolutely. I mean, and I, I don't, I don't mean to make light of it, but sometimes I have to joke in these situations for myself, but it's kind of like, when do you tell the kids the truth about Santa Claus? Sorry, spoiler alert for those that don't know, but it, but it is. And, and it's, I can, and, and the reason I'm bringing that up is the parallel, like with my youngest and when that was, and, and, you know, they knew, but they didn't hear it from from mom and dad. And so when it's kind of like finally recognized and the presents from Santa aren't under the tree and, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and, and I don't mean to, you know, two very vastly different things. But I but for me, it was a lesson about trust and conversation and the openness and honesty uh, in areas that, that do not saying that as parents, we don't have to have boundaries or well, boundaries with anyone when it comes to, to anything for that matter. But it is an incredibly difficult thing to broach. Um, and I guess for me, I kind of look at it from a standpoint I share for, to arm them with as many tools as possible, you know, like, Hey, I have struggled with depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, if you are sensing any of these things, please talk with us. So it's, yeah, I couldn't imagine how, how that worked for, for your siblings with their kids. It's tough. It's it's like, what's yeah. the right answer? Do you, is there really one? I don't know. While you're checking knocking doors down out, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. And if you get a lot out of this podcast, share with a friend. And don't forget the archive of interviews we have. Bam Margera, Brandon Novak, Kat Von D, Charlie Sheen, Edward Furlong, Kelly Osborne. The list goes on and on of amazing guests that have been on the podcast sharing how they have found purposeful lives. Speaking of purpose, how about a lifestyle brand with purpose? 5150 LTM. 
That's right. Not only is it a lifestyle brand that can fit whatever it is you're trying to achieve in life, but they give back to the community. And you, the listener of Knocking Doors Down, get 20% off every time you shop at 5150LTM. All you have to do is use the code KDD20 at checkout and get 20% off. And how does 5150 give back to the community? Portions of the sales benefit the Carlos Vieira Foundation. Their three amazing programs, the Race to End the Stigma, the Race for Autism, and the Race to Be Drug-Free. More on the Carlos Vieira Foundation, go to carlosvierafoundation.org. That's the thing. If the stigma wasn't there, it wouldn't be so bad because no one has a problem saying so-and-so died of cancer, so-and-so had a heart attack, so-and-so had an accident, so-and-so died of suicide. It should be able to fit within that same level of no stigma, but the stigma is there. I think it's getting less because we're having conversations now, but that's that's my challenge and part of what drives me is to end the stigma, to be able to talk about suicide for what it is as being a disease, something that you have no control of, and that segues into my book with Sam and his concept of monsters mm. that ultimately the monster gets so hungry it will turn around and swallow you whole. Um, there's a, the, I think it was a couple of years ago that the big debate came to change the terminology from committed suicide to died by suicide. And that even just that really just changes the perception a lot because I grew up with committed suicide, but committed makes it sound like it was an act and a deliberate act and even a criminal act, you know, criminals commit crimes. But if you change that and now we talk about died by suicide, it at least puts it in the same level as you died by cancer, you died by suicide, you know what I mean? And I think yeah. that in and of itself, just changing that dynamic of the conversation helps to bring the stigma down i agree because i think even you know uh you know they died by an overdose or you know it 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 allows us to address that this was a person that had a mental health issue and if we really look at that then it's a it's part of the you know one of the organs in our body and how it's working which are primarily our brain when it comes to these things and i think we can start to look at these like you you said not as a criminal issue but as a this is a health issue and, exactly. and it really is. And I, yeah. I mean, addiction's a health issue, you know. Sorry, people that want it's not a moral failure. Neither is someone that has attempted or sadly passed from a suicide. They're not a moral failure. This is something where they are there is an unhealthy thing going on in their body. It is I agree with you. It is an illness, it is a disease. Absolutely. I mean, when you think about that, we're wired for protection. Mm absolutely wired for protection you know if you go up onto a tall building okay there are some crazy thrill seekers out there that might not be as wide you know love to jump off these these crazy heights and everything but when we talk about the you know society as a whole the majority of us are completely wired for protection and i just think about that all the time of there has to be something broken, something lacking that you can bypass that protective mechanism. That can't be a choice. I, I don't see it as a choice. I definitely see it 
like you say, yeah, the the brain is an organ. And I know that when we were growing up, my second oldest brother, Martin, oh, sorry, my third oldest brother, he was the, set, the, the one closest to me, he had schizophrenia. And so for us, we definitely knew that he had a monster, if that makes sense, because he he we saw that and he was getting worse and worse and worse. And I still know that with some of my family members, it was a, a struggle and I get it. You know, you want to be able to just go up to the person and shake them and say, hey, you know, what's wrong? Yeah. Just just be normal. Can't you just be normal? But I know that I always had a, a different outlook and possibly because I've got more of a science mind. I'm a STEM girl. I'm a physics, chemistry, math kid. And I ended up having, doing a Bachelor of Applied Science and majoring in physiotherapy, which is physical therapy here in America. And the one thing I always equated was, you know, if you break your leg, you can see that someone's got a broken leg and you can see them limping. And I always equated that to anything to do with the the brain, that you've got something broken in the brain. So it was easier for me to understand or accept or not get as stressed out when I saw that my brother had schizophrenia. Um, I wasn't as grr to want him to to snap out of it because I understood he couldn't. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and I think that is just the the challenge with people that do have mental health issues. We can't see where it's broken. It's not as obvious as, you know, a broken arm or a broken limb. And I I think that's the the challenge. A, A huge challenge. I mean, you know, it's kind of as we continue to talk and to make the parallel with addiction and and a lot of the work that that i'm doing outside of this podcast you know people's perception always was the person that that is having that ultimate struggle is because you know you're seeing them out there and they're homeless and that's not the case like i was never homeless i have a nice home i live in a nice gated community i never lost a job because of it and you know there's just a lot of these misconceptions about it i mean i've known people that have had severe mental health struggles and yet still thrived at their careers uh you know some of them uh, i can think of one individual in particular she uh adhd and Oddly, it makes a superpower for at work, but the rest of her life is at so many times completely unmanageable. Right. Yeah, I've I've heard of those situations, right? Totally functional at work because, as you say, the ADHD sort of works in a stress environment that they they have, but then to come home just can't keep the house clean, can't, you know, keep things stocked, just can't pay the bills. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've heard of stories like that too. And going through this, I mean, what, what more have you learned? Obviously, you know, I hate using the word like that, you know, people with certain mental health, I hate when someone say, Oh, you know, well, they, their brain's kind of broken or something. It's like, no, 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 no. This is the direction it developed towards. Uh, sometimes through trauma, sometimes, I, you know, hereditary, my understanding, many of these things hereditary, uh, you know, how do we continue to help people just kind of have a little more compassion in your estimation? Yeah, that's the big thing, isn't it? And that's sort of coming back to my book, that is absolutely what Sam learns, mm. that a little bit of tenderness just goes a long way. 
with with monsters. Um, look, the the big thing definitely comes back to understanding, like as you said, that it's not a failing within the person at all. They've got no control over it. And I think the more we talk about it and normalise the fact that mental health is just as important as cardiac health and, you know, all the different other kinds of health that we need to have, yeah, you've got you've got me on that one. You know, how do we I just continue to have the conversations and providing different ways to provide the conversation? Right. I mean, with my with my book, I've had a lot of interest in the social work realm and the um, student counsellor. Realm. I mean, I had one student counsellor reach out to me because of my book and she said, can you come in and, and talk to the kids, you know, because we're looking for anything to start the conversation. We've got the textbooks, but they're like, we, if there's another way that we can come in to get that conversation and if the kids are reading about this 12-year-old boy that they can identify with, then that's a great way to come in. And then another organisation that invited me to their annual conference is the ACRC, which is the Association of Children's Residential and Community Centres. And they were just amazing. You know, they, they got my book. They understood as well. And, again, there, there was a lot of social workers, a lot of people with PhDs, and They've got their own books, which are all like non-fiction kind of research books. And here's me, little novelist with my fictional story. But, and it was the first time they'd ever bought someone like me with a fictional story. But again, they saw the importance of broaching the topic of mental health in any way possible. And the more that we can make the story relatable to the children and the teenagers, the more apt the hope is that the kids will then be able to find a language and a way to start talking about what's going on inside yeah and they have to and i i i agree with you and commend you because i know when i've gone and spoken at some local high schools and i prefer classrooms as opposed to if i was offered to speak to thousands at a time because you can actually get a conversation going and by the end of it you know, they, these these teenagers, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18, will reveal to you how much they appreciate someone and just coming and talking to them uh, on the same level and understanding that they're going through something. Like, I can't stand it. And I, Sandra, I call out friends that go, well, I just told them, wait till you're my age. I'm like, bullshit. Do you know, think back to when you were 13, 14, 15, raging hormones, all this confusion in the world. And teenagers now are dealing with more BS than ever, than ever. And, Don't know if I'd survive as a teenager. In yeah. Today's There's some of it that I just have to like, be like, I got to shove that over there. This is not something I can ever go towards. It's, it's, it's an almost a lunacy. So they appreciate when you can get on their level and be it an act of fiction, nonfiction, whatever it is. Like, I love that you've done this and made this available and something that they can digest and, and, and pick out. Cause storytelling is so important in our history. And it's, 
it's gone by the way of BS reality TV and all this other crap that from like good oh. actual stories that carry us a moral, you know? Oh, gosh. Knocking Doors Down by Carlos Vieira. Now available wherever you get audiobooks. I wasn't done partying, and I didn't want the binge to end. I think I knew that when I finally got home, I'd have to face what I had done, and I wasn't ready to do that. Being responsible for my actions wasn't something I was looking forward to. I had abandoned my wife and baby, my family, and my business. I wanted to avoid the shame of returning to what I had left behind. Even though I was not yet going home, I wasn't sure I had enough resources to continue the binge. Click the link in the podcast description to find out more. I was just reading up about with the writer strike, the WGA writer strike, and in our world, there's definitely a lot of chatter about AI and AI taking over story. And I think there was an article in Variety, and one of the things that came up was, um, will the studios still ultimately want to write with AI? Yes. Will the quality be a lot worse? Yes. Will they care? No. No. Right. As long as it's cheaper and faster, quality is always sort of at the lower end of the spectrum. And it's kind of frustrating. It is. I, I had a really neat experience over the weekend. Um, my my youngest, my, my partner, her and I and uh, my best friend and his uh, girlfriend, we went and saw Empire Strikes Back performed with a symphony. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, an amazing experience. And. I'm watching that movie and I forgot like how brilliant those original three movies were with, you know, the hero's journey and these certain things and having to confront it. Like if you look at Luke and Empire Strikes Back, he's like the petulant teenager that thinks he knows what he's doing and it bites him in the ass, a.k.a. gets his hand lopped off by his dad <laughs> of all things and finds out, you know. He's born to this source of it. So it's all these things and having to confront. And I think that's just the brilliant thing that we can do within the fictional realm that if you like get it, you know, it's like, wow, I, I forgot how much I love that movie. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, the wisdom yeah. of a of a Yoda. We all need a Yoda. Mentors. Yep. Exactly. I, I, and I'm guessing that, you know, in the book, Sam, the main character, right? Sam, yes. Yeah, I'm I'm guessing there's some mentorship possibly, you know, all these things. That oh, just... there's a great mentorship. I love the mentorship role because it's with a biker. With oh, a biker wow. Cliff. Yeah, yeah. And so this biker takes Sam under his wing because he does not want Sam going down the same path as he went down. And, yeah, I, I really love that little side story that's in my book. How did you how did you pull that and why a biker? Probably because we grew up with two very prominent bikers that were close to my family. They basically went to school with my two brothers mm. and they were at the same age and in the same my so my two older brothers were a year apart. And these two guys, they started off as really straight laced guys. I remember them when they were in high school. And then when they left high school, they clicked with one of the local bike gangs, one of the big ones in Sydney. And, yeah, but honestly, I always got to see that good side of them. When my brother Martin died, I was in America 
they ca- they called up and they said, Sandra, we'll book you your flight home. We'll pay for everything. You know, they paid for my brother's funeral. They organised everything for him. They were always there for my mum. My mum, who had these six acres that she had to look after, ultimately by herself and with us kids, Anytime mum needed work done, these guys also had these big earth-moving equipment because they also were into construction. They'd come over and they'd do whatever mum needed. So even though I know that they had this other world that probably wasn't, you know, kosher, I got to see this heartfelt side of these bikers. So I think that was just ingrained with me that this was going to be the mentor for Sam. Yeah. I love it. That's, that's awesome that you were able to pull from that. Uh, It's, it's really interesting. And I love talking to writers and how these things just kind of get these aha moments in their story. And it just really makes it even more full. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, I always tell people there's no way this is an autobiography at all. But the emotions that Sam goes through, absolutely. They're real and honest and have been felt by this author. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, Sandra, I'm going to kind of put you in there. I don't, I wouldn't say a hot seat, but because you commented on it and I post, uh, posted a quote on the Knocking Doors Down Instagram that meant something to me because I struggle with this. And the quote is, it's important that we forgive ourselves for making m- mistakes. We need to learn from our errors and move on. And and you had commented, so true. I find I beat myself up and need to learn to forgive myself and let go. Oh, I think what, what? I am the absolute worst. You know, if I make a mistake... I'll admit to it. I really will. But I think because I hold such a high bar for myself, Mm. I perseverate on the mistake. And I know that's a bad thing. But I always think, what did I do wrong? And I always think about how could I have not had that happen? And I find it really hard to let go of the mistake. I don't find it hard to admit to it. I will. Even if it's a bad one, I will put my tail between my legs and either it's something I've got to admit to my husband or something that happened at work. And there's been a few doozies at, at work. I work in production, although I don't anymore. I had to let something give because my life was getting too busy. Mm. But, um, you know, when you're working in film production, if things happen, you can't bury it. You have to step up and say, oops, this happened. And... I just always beat myself up afterwards. Even when people say, look, it's not your mistake. It was just the the situation. You No one could have predicted this situation was going to happen. I always put pressure on myself that, no, I should have been able to predict it. Does that make sense? Even though I know that I couldn't. And 100%. I, I, I couldn't relate to you. Uh... A, I've got to get better at letting go, of accepting that the mistake has happened learning from it and moving on. But I'll find myself laying in bed at night time, thinking about it, anxiety. Yes. (laughs) Yes to all that. (laughs) Uh, Well, the hard thing and what I've really tried to work on with myself is remembering like, okay, if, if, if it was somebody else on the other end and I was over here, would I treat them the way I'm treating myself? And the answer is, 99.99% of the time, no. No, of course not. 
And yeah. so it's, but it's hard. It's like people like, well, I like to look at myself objectively. BS. Nobody can do that. You can't. There, there's no way. It does. We don't work that way in our self-image. We, we just don't. Um, but I try to remember that. I try to remember to treat myself the best I can as I would others in those situations and remind myself I'm not a freaking soothsayer either. You know, if I was, I, I'd probably be making some really good sports bets and, uh, you know, right. uh, doing a lot more service with, with finances than I, than I can afford at this time. I guess it comes back to as long as I don't make the same mistake twice. Mm. Right, yeah. which I probably have. I'm sure I have, but I strive to at least not make the same mistake twice. Well, there's certain amount of us that, that and pe some people want to reject it. We all have some level of programming, you know. I mean, you have programming from from your childhood. I mean, those first formative, those first five formative years, we all do. And it, and it's and it's tough to break, especially when when some of these traumas and challenges and and you know, maybe our tactics, like I, I wasn't a liar, but I did find a way to people please to get through situations. And I learned that at a young age and I've really had to break that, you know, I've had to be better about being straight up honest. Um, so we all have these little nuances to us that, you know, they, they can be tough to break our programming, uh, for lack of a better term. Yeah, that's definitely true. Definitely. Well, tell me, I mean, you're such, uh, you were talking about production. Uh, what were you working in? Film, television, uh, music? Film. Film. The one that we're wrapping up right now is called Boy Kills World, oh. which stars Bill Skarsgård. Oh. Co-produced with Sam Raimi and our production company. And this um, Vertigo Entertainment yeah. involved. So it's in the last stages of post-production at the moment. Actually, we've got, oh, no, probably one. I'll just say that. It's in, it's in the last <laughs> stages of post-production at the moment. And it's a, it's a really awesome action extravaganza uh, with, with Bill Skarsgård as our lead. I love it. I'll have to I look forward to checking it out. And you you hit some of the, the I mean, I'm a big Sam Raimi fan. And then when she said action movie, I'm in. I went to uh amusing store. I was going to San Francisco State for film. And uh, eventually I graduated from CSUMB in Monterey for film, television, minor acting. And uh I did not get along with anyone because we're up there and everybody's, we had to do a dissertation and focus on a particular like actor or movie or filmmaker or something. And I did the impact of Sylvester Stallone and I got more eye rolls from people. And, and I was like, I want to make action movies. I learned a lot from action movies as a kid. Stallone's awesome. He broke so many boundaries. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. But there was, you know, this was uh, like '97, so uh, there's just just kind of a lot of, lot of just like ah, uh, you know, uh, you know. And I love people like Scorsese and all that, but that's what they were focused, you know, most of the people in the class, and it was just kind of like, oh, this guy, oh, whatever, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, so hey, what are you gonna do? I love it. I love it. I love filmmaking. Such a beautiful process. But speaking oh, of. Man. 
um you're also uh do a lot of lyricist right you did a lot of different music too throughout the year. i started off as a lyricist well that was my intent i actually mm. didn't know how to write lyrics all i'd written was poetry but i had this dream that i just wanted to sing just record a cd actually that's all i wanted to do i knew that you could do magic in the studio I know that I'm not a natural singer, but I knew that even back then, we're talking maybe 20 years ago, I still knew they were able to pitch things out and make things sound nice. And that's all I wanted. I just wanted wanted that. So my friend said, just go down to UCLA and put a notice up on the notice board and you'll find someone. So I did. Singer-songwriter looking for guitarist-keyboardist um, to write co-write music. I think I said, a sense of humour is a must and must love ACDC and ABBA. <laughs> my broad range of music. And my now husband was in down at UCLA studying film score. That was back in the day, you know, you put the note up and you, you cut the little bottoms and you got your phone number. Yeah. And he pulled my number off and called me up and we met down at the Roosevelt Hotel. There's a cafe down there in Hollywood. And... I didn't have any lyrics. I just handed over my poetry. But he said my poetry spoke to him and I figured out how to write lyrics from there. And, yeah, we for the next six or nine months, we sort of locked ourselves in his tiny little studio down that he was living in down in Hollywood and we recorded a CD. I'll be darned. Yeah. And then after the fact... Everyone said, well, now that you've got a CD, aren't you going to play out live? And I went, no. I did. <laughs> I did. Um, and we played out for about a year. And it just, look, it was a rough kind of industry. It wasn't an industry I wanted to be in because you're required, you probably know about a bit of this stuff, you're required to bring your draw, you yeah. know, depending on where you play. Oh, you have to bring at least 50 people. And I even had a booking agent, which is quite surprising, but my booking agent said to me, Sandra, you can really only play out in Los Angeles once or twice a year because you've got to bring your draw. The expectation was I'd start to go on the road, and yeah. I did not want to go on the road. I, that wasn't an interest of mine. So the band disbanded, but the writing stayed and the lyrics segued into screenplays, which segued into novels. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, I, and it is. No, I was in the uh, 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 radio programming for 20 plus years and all the bands and the tough road trips and the misconceptions. Hey, we're out here. We're a touring band. We're killing it, making money. No, oftentimes you're barely eating and, li you know, living out of your van and uh, yeah, it's a tough road. It's a tough road. As much as I like to travel, I kind of got to return to home base in some regards because uh, I kind of go a little stir crazy. So, yeah, I couldn't do it. Yeah, but it wasn't a life I was willing to to embrace. Yeah. Let's talk about little Sandra. I'm, I'm curious, you know, growing up, I know that, you know, things were pretty disjointed at home i'm going to assume with with dad's struggles and and all that and how you know um i'm get were all five of you siblings at home at one point or was it kind of when you came along oldest was gone or no no we were all so up until when dad passed away i was 13 my oldest was around about 18 we were all still at home oh wow and the funny thing is 
although my childhood, I guess, was crazy, looking back, I would describe that I had a very happy childhood. I just remember a lot of laughter, and I think that's the part that helped a lot. My mum, we would talk about Dad, and but when we would talk, she'd tell stories, and we'd tell these funny stories about him. We'd never talk about the awful stuff. Or even, yeah, there was sort of some awful things that he did, like, oh, gosh, I still do remember this as a little kid. My dad was Italian, and he immigrated to Australia when he was about 16 or 17, didn't know a lick of the language, self-taught to become a builder, you know, worked with other builders, became a builder, and he built really meticulous houses, at least that's what I was told, that he was the quintessential artisan, craftsman, you know, that really cared about the building, not like some of the things they slap up these days. (laughs) But, you know, Dad came from an era where the kids worked, Right. And I'm sure even when he was a kid back in Italy, he was out on the farm three, four, five, six years of age. So he would drag my two oldest brothers to work. And I do remember memories I do have. And I would have only been a tiny tot. I must have only been about two or three because I remember myself being in my nappy or diaper. They're called diapers over here, sitting in front of the oil heater that we had because the mornings were quite chilly, and just hearing my brothers screaming, going, no, no, and like being, and I'm seeing them being dragged. And they would have only been young. So if they're six or seven, right, I, I must have only been two or three when this was happening. So I do remember those moments, and I think, gosh, you know, what must have that done to them? And then when I did get older and I had nieces and nephews, I would look at my, my nephews when they were four and five, and I'd look at these little small frames and I'd think, oh, my gosh, I couldn't imagine these little boys being dragged off to the building site. Yeah. And so that's sort of what happened to my brothers. But that aside, as a bad memory, I I remember just laughing a lot. I had a lot of laughter with, with mum. What, so, what, when did like, the, the your artistic side, your creativity come in? Was writing always kind of an outlet, where you, you know, something that you yeah, turned to? that's an interesting thing. So like I said earlier, little Miss Physics, chemistry, math girl, I kind of struggled with what we call English, like the English subject. Mm. What I call struggle, other people would look at me and go, Ugh. But, I mean, when I'm getting, like, in the 90th percentile for math and chemistry and and I'm only getting, like, 60, um, 74%, 75% for English, for me that was a real struggle. That sure. was a bad subject for me. And I just didn't quite get it. I didn't really get the grammar. I it didn't understand a lot of the you – know, whenever we had to do exams and you'd have to write a comprehension and analyse why this, you know – I just didn't get all that stuff. The only time I ever got really good marks was during creative writing where huh. the grammar and spelling was weighed way less and I'd get these out of 30, I'd be getting 29, 28 out of 30 just leave minus one for spelling, which is a little bit what Sam gets. He has to write it <laughs> at the end of the book. It's like minus one for spelling. But the teachers never really said anything. They just, it was more like a pat on the head. Oh, good girl, but off you go physics and do all the stuff that you're really good at. And it really wasn't 
until I came to America, I'll be honest. I always wanted to write, but in Australia, especially when I grew up, I'm an 80s kid, there really wasn't a lot of opportunities. So you didn't have the internet, it didn't, there weren't places to go. But I remember I'd look in the paper to, to try and find creative writing classes, but it was just hard to get to them where we grew up. And it, yeah, so it really wasn't till I came to America that I thought, you know, I'm going to explore this a little bit more. And I started taking classes down at UCLA in the extension. And there was one class I took, story analysis, where I had a bit of an aha moment because the guy who was teaching that, I think he was a, a story analyst for CBS or ABC, something like that. But he said a lot of people that are good at math are good at plot hmm. and story. And that was an aha moment for me. I was like, really? I always thought in order to write story, you had to be a grammar expert. You know, your spelling had to be top-notch. But you learn after the fact that, yeah, plot really is more of an analytical uh, component to storytelling. Grammar, oh, there are editors out there. That do <laughs> you start to realise you do not have to worry about the things that I thought were important. And then the second person who gave me permission to just let go and write was Stephen King when I read his book on writing, because, I, again, I always thought, oh, you know, if I'm going to write, I have to have this magical prose and I need to be able to just, hey, I can't even talk in this elegant kind of way. Sure. And I read on writing and he talks about the writer's toolbox and you write to the level of your toolbox. So if you're a, if you're a surgeon, a, a neurosurgeon, a neurosurgeon is going to have a very different toolbox to a carpenter, to a you know, an accountant, and it's the same with writing. Just write to the level of your toolbox. And it's such a simple concept, but, again, that gave me permission to go, oh, I still can write. I don't have to be this amazing writer that can just spew out these glorious prose and metaphors and all these different things and so that's, it, it took me a little while. It took me several years before I was willing to give myself the permission to even call myself a writer. The Knockin' Doors Down book shares all the history and inspiration behind the Carlos Vieira Foundation and how it all started. All proceeds from the book benefit the Carlos Vieira Foundation's Race to Be Drug-Free campaign. So what's that all about? Through the Race to Be Drug-Free campaign, Carlos Vieira Foundation raises awareness about drug abuse, donates to drug-free programs, and brings drug-free speakers into schools to educate youth. The Race to Be Drug-Free campaign's main program is the Gloves Not Drugs boxing program. This program is completely free for kids between the ages of 8 and 17 to learn discipline, strength, respect, camaraderie, and the art of boxing. The program was created to keep kids off the streets, out of gangs, and away from drugs. For more info and to get involved, check out carlosvierafoundation.org. Uh, it's it's weird, right? You know, I think when we're young, um, at least for me, is like, what's that magical thing? You know, you got to find it. And and I think I probably shocked some people when I started doing radio. It's like, you're normally a pretty introverted, shy guy, you know? So it's just weird where we can find this thing in us that that we may not have thought was there 
Yeah, the other thing that I would definitely say, and a lot of Australians will probably agree with me, America has less boundaries. You mm. feel like people are way more open. doesn't matter what your background is. You can, you know, go off and do it. You can live your dream basically, whereas in Australia it really felt like everything's set up to have a business career, mm. not a creative career, something in the business realm. And it just, I, I still think to this day with some, I've got some school friends that really have embraced that I'm a writer. I even had one friend who I went back when I was back in Australia. He's like, oh, yeah, this doesn't surprise me at all. I remember you were very creative at school. I was like, I was. It's interesting what your friends remember about you that you don't remember yourself. But he had a specific memory about that. But I think I've got other friends who just don't get it. They don't get this this girl who, I mean, let's face it, I could have gone into medicine. I had marks in the high school certificate to get into medicine. I just didn't want that kind of pressure. I'm like, I don't want to do medicine. I don't want to have anyone's life in my hands. And I just think they find it very strange that this girl gave up everything. I gave up my career because I was climbing the corporate ladder in the health industry here in Los Angeles. I came over as a physical therapist and then I ended up getting an MBA and I was a hospital safety officer and I was overseeing policies and procedures and just all these very corporate kind of a lot of pressure too, working in a hospital being the, the safety officer and to just one day step away from all of that and go, nope, I'm done with that. I'm going to follow the creative part that's in my heart. I got a sense that there's some friends back in Australia that still don't get it. And I think it's cool, though. And I'm going to tell you why. Because See, you're American. Americans think it's really cool. <laughs> no, well, and I just think in general, I think, you know, so many people, we do things out of the expectations of others. And and one of my favorite sayings on here, and I know you've listened to a couple episodes, maybe heard me say it, there's no outside solutions to inside problems. And so that external validation potentially of people, well, you know, gee, Sandra, you could have had this and the, this amazing, you know, pension or whatever things that they would throw out. But it's yeah. about what ends up filling us in here and feels good in here. I mean, as you know, as long as it's not something nefarious and doing harm with others, but that's it's where we kind of find our energy, our spirit to, you know, in whatever way be of service to others. I mean, you know, you're you wrote this book because it was in you to write it, but it's helping other people in turn. You know, and it's I think it's awesome. I think that's a great thing. Thank you. I had people telling me when I left, you know, 20 year radio career to start this podcast. Dude, are you sure? I don't know. You know, everybody in their mother's going to ha is having a podcast now. And it just felt like it's what I had to do. So I dig it. I think it's cool. I think that's, yeah. you know, I mean, we're only going to get this one damn go around. We might as well do the things we want to exactly. do. With it. And honestly, I realized that when I was at the hospital, I was wishing my life away. This is how bad it was. The weekend would come. The only time I would enjoy myself was Friday night and Saturday. Mm -hmm. As soon as Sunday came, the dread the dread just filled my body that this was my last day before Monday. And then the entire week, I did nothing but wish the week was over. And I just, <laughs> that was my life. That was my cycle. And I'm like, that's crazy. I am living 
for one and a half days or a full day in an evening a week. Yeah. That's and yes, I was making good money. And yes, I had security. And yes, I had great health insurance and all the things that you talk about. Don't have any of that as a writer, don't have any security. Um yes, we've got great health insurance, but we're paying an arm and a leg for it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. you now how that goes. But am I happier? Do I have that anxiety? Am I living my wishing my life away? No, it's so you got to you got to weigh it all up. Yeah, I mean, because it, it is, and I mean, let's break that down. You know, three hundred and sixty-five days in a year, excluding mm-hmm. leap year, and if you're only joining <laughs> one and a half, maybe two. So exactly. at, that's less than one third of all the days in the year that you are even looking forward to. Yep, that is misery oh plus i will admit i'd worked up to the fact that i was getting six weeks off oh wow and okay so no, we could throw it in. at least i had those six weeks but then probably not full six weeks because the last like two or three days of the end of vacation time i'd be like oh, i've got to go back to work and i'd be doing <laughs> nothing but stressing about the fact that i've got to go back to work <laughs> so yeah maybe one third of the days we'll give it that out of the year yeah. that's that's that sounds miserable to me it's very miserable yeah. I agree. It sounded miserable to me too. And it sounded miserable to my husband. He was more than happy for me to leave and follow this writing. Oh, uh, I'm sure. That that is really tough being with with a partner that you love and care about and you're there for and you just see it and and it takes a toll overall, you know. It's just like I just want to get home and go to bed. Okay, well, you know, doesn't give you time to for to connect mentally, emotionally, spiritually, none of it. No. Well, I'm proud of you. I think well, it's awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jason. You keep it going. Um, hey, Sandra, uh, why don't you tell people if they want to uh, not only find out more about uh, making friends with monsters, but your other books you've written and what you're doing, how, how they can get a hold of you and check out the work. Yeah, so I've got my four books. I've got Making Friends with Monsters and my YA Fantasy, the Cecilia series. You can find me. I keep it very simple. Everything is at SL Rosterola. I am on TikTok, Instagram, occasionally on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn more often, more recently, more often. And my website is www.slrosterola.com. And just that was on TikTok. I'm on TikTok. You're on TikTok. We'll put those links in the podcast description so uh, people can check it out, check out the books. Because I'm a little curious about the other books too. Give us a little rundown of of the the series, real quick. The Cecilia series. So that very quickly started off as a ballet. That was mm. the reason why I became a novelist. I was supposed to write a ballet for my husband, who wanted to do the music, and I said I'd write the ballet story. A 15-page ballet story turned into a 90-page ballet story as he told me to keep writing, and then he pulled away from doing the ballet because he got too busy with his film scoring work and I was left with 90 pages. And he said, well, why don't you write the novel? And said, that's how my first novel came about. And it's a story. Ultimately, it's good and evil. And it's about Cecilia, who's an innocent, who lives an idyllic life in a forest. And then one day a group of raiders come in and they destroy the village, steal all the young men and kill everyone except for Cecilia. She escapes and she makes the bold move 
to go and find her brothers. And along the way, she's kidnapped by an assassin. And this assassin was sent because she was supposed to die the first time. She was the target. And so because the soldiers failed, the senators that live in this really corrupt city in Vita sent their best. They sent Amalad to kill her. But the problem was Amalad can't kill her and he doesn't know why, but we end up finding out that the two of them are supposed to meet. The two of them are linked by this prophecy huh. where Amalad is descended from a long lost line of Coilatia and the Coilatia are the protectors of the prophecy and the prophecy is Cecilia. And Cecilia's one job is to carry the light of the dying goddess of light carry her light to the darkest places, which is Vetus, which is a very corrupt city ruled by these senators that oppress the citizens, and she needs to deliver the light. And metaphorically what that means is she needs to inspire them to rise up and fight for themselves. And her whole shtick is she wants nothing to do with it. She's the chosen one that doesn't want to be the chosen one. So the bottom line is Amalad helps Cecilia find her inner warrior princess and she finds she helps him find his inner humanity. And it's this big slow burn love story is <laughs> what it is wrapped up in epic fantasy of good and evil. Oh, I love it. Well, you made three books that you made a trilogy out of it, right? Yeah, I wasn't planning to, but, but <laughs> after book one, everyone's like, oh, are you going to write some more books? Are you going to book two and book three? And that's always difficult because you always think you've risen the stakes as much as possible. Sure. I'm like, oh, gosh, how do I rise? You know, you've got to raise the stakes even more. But I found I found a way to raise the stakes to write book two and book three. But that's it. There won't be a book four. No yeah. book four. Yeah. <laughs> Cutting it off here. <laughs> yes. Uh, you, you mean you're not going to get down the Harry Potter route of 17 of these things or whatever? <laughs> you know, if Hollywood came a knocking, uh, uh, sure. I, one of the reasons <laughs> why I'm sure that the only reason why Harry Potter has so many is because the money keeps rolling in and you're told we need to write more. Sure. Then I, I, I'm money. I, you know, if there was the whole money there, I'd be able to be inspired, I'm sure, to write more and more stuff. <laughs> right. <Yeah. No. laughs> uh, hey, no, because I, I, I do uh, four podcasts and I've had people like, can you do any more? I'm like, it depends on what the paycheck is behind it. Sure. You know, it's like right. I, at some point it's like, you know, I need a little bit of jing here to... <laughs> You know, I've set this all because because we're creators and we get a lot of joy from creating. They think that that should be payment enough. You know, it's a little. One of my favorite films is Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. If you watch, oh, I love it. Right, you know when when he's like, well, what do I get out of this? And um, oh, I can't think of his name. He's the the main guy's character. The who have we got? Michael. Michael, Michael Caine. Yeah, Michael Caine says um, you get knowledge, Freddie. You don't get right. paid; you get knowledge. And right. I just find that so hilarious. And as creators, we're kind of told, "Oh, well, you get joy. That's your right. payment. You get joy out of creating this work." It's like, no, we also need to get paid as well, yeah. because it's not like we we're not plants. We can't just live off air, sunlight, and water. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to carry the 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 suffering uh, artist thing forever. No, I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. 
5150 is a lifestyle. We believe in pushing yourself, finding your passion, knowing your dreams, and working hard, always striving to make those dreams a reality. We believe life's too short to sit back and say, what if? Go after it, grab it, and make it happen. Being 5150 is committing to that long, hard road ahead that you know is going to be tough, but the most rewarding. That's living the madness. That's 5150. If you're living the 5150 lifestyle, then celebrate by rocking the goods. Listeners of Knocking Doors Down, head over to 5150ltm.com. That website again, 51FIFTYLTM.com. Uh, all right, we're going to jump into some uh, random questions, and uh, I'm going to ask you for the uh, final thought. But um, okay. uh, being that, uh, I mean, your husband, a, a composer, that's awesome. Um, but what was the last song you listened to on purpose? You're like, ooh, I want to put this song on. Can you remember? <laughs> so easy. Thunderstruck by ACDC. Nice. I just get in the car. I put on Apple, Apple Play, and I just say, Hey Siri, play Thunderstruck by AC. <laughs> <laughs> Is that how you get through LA traffic? Like oh, she's saying Thunderstruck. <laughs> uh, <laughs> she just started playing it. Uh, You're going to have to get a license for that. Nah, so, it'll be fine. Oh we talked God. over it. No, the, the algorithm <laughs> won't pick it up. That's too awesome. Uh, where did the love for ACDC? I mean, obviously Australian, you know, it's one of got to be a national pride, but it, it really was. I mean, growing up, um, we grew up with the actual records on the that spun around on the disc, oh, yeah. and we had the a very limited but very eclectic set. And we had ACDC, ABBA, and I remember we also had a single, a very small single of Prince's Controversy. Oh. That was pretty much it. And, oh, no, the other thing we had, my husband just rolls his eyes whenever I talk about this. We had Hooked on Classics. That oh, was my really? favourite, you know, with the, the, the classics with the 808 beat behind them. Yeah. I think secretly my husband does like Hooked on Classics. Every now and then I see him tapping away to it, but he still thinks it's a bit sacrilegious to be having an oh. 808 behind these classical instruments. But that was the... Yeah, ACDC. We grew up with it. Nice. Well, and you threw my favorite ever in there. And I know you've been to Paisley Park. I have yet to go, but I'm a huge Prince fan. I've yeah. saw nobody more live. If I could find the tickets, I believe it was close to 30 times that I saw them live. But oh uh, wow. Oh I, yeah. Did I see him in concert? I'm trying to think. I don't think I did. Mm. Uh, did I? Got a very vague memory of some of the concerts we went to in Australia. I know I saw ZZ Top. Oh, nice. And I remember I was invited to go just from a, a friend and I I was really bad at knowing the names of bands. It just I, I just knew music. And when I went there, I was like, oh, I know this song. Oh, I know this song. Like, oh, this song. I thought it was so awesome. I knew so many of the songs. It was really uh. cool. Uh, yeah, I've had some of those moments. I mean, I knew the band. I uh, it was a time I was going to see Motley Crue at the Midstate Fair, Paso Robles, oh, yeah. and they were having some transportation issues. And it was like, they're gonna be here, but it's gonna start like two hours late. And so they had, you know, some small, some some bands playing smaller areas, the free areas, and stuff like that. So we go to this band, and I'm like, boy, these guys are really good. And I'm like, they sound a lot like Flock of Seagulls, and everybody's like. Yeah, okay. Like, how would you know that? I'm like, well, because I'm a guy that listened beyond the single. 
Well, then it comes into they they're like, "This is our last song. Thank you." Uh, I ran, you know, and it, they're they're playing, and I'm like, "See, flock of seagulls," and you know, the guy used to have the crazy hair, right? Well, now he had a ball cap on, and he's bald now. And then at the end, he goes, "We're flock of seagulls." Thank you. And I look at everybody, and I go, oh, "See, God. your son's a," you know. So, <laughs> man, I've had a few of those moments where you just stumble upon something. You're like, "Oh, this is really good," or "I know this." Um, if you could have one superpower, what would it be, and why? Invisibility. Really, I always think about that. I always have these, like, you know, when you lay in bed at night, you have these, like, little mini fantasies. One of the things I always fantasize about is being invisible. Why? I just think, oh, I, I just think maybe I'm, like, the quintessential one to eavesdrop on a lot of things. But, no, I always <laughs> think that would be great. And the different things I'd do, I'd go into, like, the boardrooms of all these, like, corporations to learn what's going on so I could make these great stock trades. Information's <laughs> 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 power, right? Yeah. And I just think it would be great to be invisible, to be able to just sneak into places. <laughs> you, you would use it for a little insider trading. Yeah? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, much with great power comes great responsibility. Right. I'd be breaking rules left, right, and center with my invisibility power. Yeah, but we would donate a lot of the money, though, right? We do it for good. <laughs> we do it to help people. So, you know, there yeah. there is a good reason. Um all right. Uh, if you're stranded on a deserted island, you had one movie and one music artist greatest hits album with you, what would they be? I kind of have a feeling on the greatest hits for the artist, but. Yeah, but the, yeah, the greatest hits would probably be Ava Gold. Oh, really? Well, I like ACDC. Like, I, I really do. ABBA, I would, if that was the only the one thing I could listen to, it would be the Ava Gold album. And the other one was the one movie. Yep. Oh, you know, that's a tough one. I definitely have my movies that I know I can watch several times a year depending on my mood, and one of them is Shawshank Redemption. I can just watch that over and over. The other one is Absolutely Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. <laughs> and my third one is Twins. Believe it or not, I love oh. I love Twins. <laughs> Which would I pick? I'd probably pick Dirty Rotten Scoundrels because even though, like, I totally love Shawshank Redemption, it is still a mood movie. Yeah, because it's a little heavy. Whereas Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, the just the dialogue that is just brilliant dialogue, and it never gets old. Listening to it, the acting never gets old, and the music. Oh my gosh, I just love the score yeah. to that film. So, and it is. It's one of those brilliant. Um, it's one of the well, a a Michael Caine role that people sleep on, and oh, and Steve Steve Martin gets slept on so many of the things he did. He just has such brilliant dialogue. I mean, one of the all time, mm -hmm. just a phenomenal actor. Period, uh, but comedic. Oh my gosh, yeah, definitely one of his best for sure. Uh, what do you think your greatest achievement is? I would say writing, making friends with monsters. Yeah. Really, even though I've written the the. Cecilia series as a trilogy, and that's a lot of words. I really think this book is, <laughs> to quote um, Mozart out of Amadeus, the best thing ever written. <laughs> it's, <laughs> that I've written. it's the best thing I've ever written. Um, and, yeah, I, I, I'm just so happy with how it all came about it's, there's one thing that happens in this book with the little facts. You mentioned how there's fact number one. And I always wanted to 
have a book or write a book where there were these little nuggets that mm. the reader would get, that even if they don't remember the story as a whole, there might be these couple little take-home nuggets and these are the facts and Sam collects 26 of these little facts about monsters and I get really excited and happy when I read a review and the reviewer will specifically talk about the facts and they'll maybe mention their two or three facts that hit home for them that made them have an aha moment. And so it's sort of ticking all the, this book is ticking all the boxes of my bucket list of the story that I wanted to to write and I'm, I'm really happy with it. Oh, I love to hear that. Bad to say, I'm happy with it. That's there. You, that's I love it. There you go. You're happy with it. That's cool. Give yourself that thumbs up, pat on the back, self high five. Right? Uh, <laughs> can I ask you? Was writing the book kind of cathartic? I do get asked that question a lot. Yeah. Um, I think it was. I think I'm having more catharsisism. Is that the word? during these interviews Mm. because everything that's in the book was never anything that I was fearful to confront. I've always been very open and honest about my past. My husband knew all of everything when I met him and I had no problem any time I'd meet friends, they would all know about my past. It's not something that I felt I needed to hide. Granted, I did have one guy said to me when I was in Chicago, he was my scene partner. I was doing a little bit of acting. <laughs> when I told him about everything that happened, he looked at me and he goes, oh, I could never date someone like you. <laughs> Not that I wanted to date him, but right. it sort of made me go, oh, okay, yeah, so I am going to get judged because of this. But it didn't stop me from talking about it. Right. But I guess... I've never spoken about it in such an open forum and this kind of these podcasts and interviews have probably been more cathartic. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. And I I just love those people that it's like, oh, I can never, it's like, uh, hey, pal, you weren't on my list of people to shag (laughs) anyways. It's like, who do you, you You so weren't, you so weren't (sighs) that, it's, yeah, I yeah. just love when people say stupid stuff like that. As a matter of fact, I was joking with my my girlfriend the other day about something of a reference of like, oh, it, you know, uh, too bad that person is a homosexual, whatever. And I'm like, you know, I remember someone saying that to me. I'm like, you say that like they were going to have any interest what? in taking off yeah. their clothes for you. Like, right? like who who are you? Like, <laughs> what? Like, yeah, don't be an ass. Anyways, uh well, again, uh, we'll have the links in the podcast description. Sandra, I asked the guest kind of at the end um, to leave with the final thoughts. Anything that you want to share from your life experience to anyone that may be struggling, if they have someone that they know and love that's struggling, just a, a little nugget that you might want to share? Um, oh, boy. I think so if anyone that is struggling... I always definitely think it's harder for the people that are struggling to tell them, you know, to try and talk about it. So I would say for people that know that that someone's struggling in their life, just be an ear for them. And when, when I say be an ear, I know that when we try to listen to people and their problems, there's such a temptation to want to throw our experiences on there. 
and go, oh, yeah, and with me. And a lot of the time that person doesn't need that. You need to, to listen means to be quiet, to be quiet and then just take in what that person is saying and to not try and give them any answers. They usually don't need answers. They just need someone to offload onto and vent, vent if that's another word. Um, I'm probably being a little bit too talkative here. So in summary, just try to listen more to your friends and your family. No, that was great. Thank you. And I and uh, and I think you even made reference to something when I was reading about you on your website that uh, you don't want to be, what did you say, a word salad or something along those lines? Oh, oh my gosh, where did you, like, that sounds familiar, word you salad. You said something about being a little overly chatty or something. Oh, I am overly chatty. I That's another little, do I call it a failing? If I get anxious or excited if I get excited I just find I I chat and I think that's another reason why I'm a writer the words that formulate in my head flow to my fingers smoothly but boy they take detours and weird things happen when they've got to go from my brain to my mouth it's just (laughs) weird it's weird I have a, a far harder time formulating thoughts and expressing them in a cohesive way Oh, that's all right. I think you're awesome. And this has been a real pleasure. Thank you, Sandra. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Jason. I have had a lot of fun on your show. This is the Knocking Doors Down podcast featuring celebrities, experts, and everyday people who have overcome adversities, including addiction, mental health, and trauma to live purposeful lives. And that's what Knocking Doors Down is all about.